Alrighty, uh, behind the vinyl, uh, and it's just me and Nicholas today. Darren is off doing other things, and uh, I'm joined today by Mr. Dennis Stratton. Hello. Legendary guitar player. And uh, what we're doing today is we're going to talk about the, um, the first Maiden album, uh, which came out on uh, 14th of April, 1980. Um, I'm thinking, um, do you remember the first time you actually saw the album cover and what your initial thought was? <clears throat> well, um, it, it's, it's strange because um, uh, Dave Lights, who was the lighting engineer that came up with Eddie at the start, was just a skull, was an Ed. <clears throat> Excuse me, and um, and uh, through the early days, um, we we just used got used to having this Ed on a bit of wood with uh, smoke coming out his eye, his right. mouth, and his eye eyeballs is lit up with light bulbs. And uh, yes, it was one of those things where uh, when when we we were I don't know if it was just halfway through the album when we saw this this proper Eddie. Uh, image and uh, yeah it was striking because I never I'll never forget the first thing everyone said was if you were looking through a lot of albums in a, in a record store at them days you looked at that and it just right. hit you right in the face yeah, yeah it, that was the that was the main thing and it, and it stuck big time you know absolutely yeah 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 Always. but also I mean Derek Ricks was that someone you'd ever heard of before yeah, oh, yeah. I had and um uh, everything was new to me because uh, you, you know, got to be remember in the early days that uh, Steve was was playing with with um, Iron Maiden in in one little pub in right. East End of London, and I was playing with RDB. Sorry, that's my phone. <laughs> uh, Remus Down Boulevard, which were on tour with Quo and everything else. So uh, it was new to me uh, going into Maiden, working on the the early, early right. stuff for the first album that. Um, you meet all these new people, you know, and uh, and also you have to remember that when when Steve and Dave used to come down, Dave Murray, when they used to come down to the Bridge House in Canning Town to to watch me play with RDB, um, basically when they signed the deal with EMI, uh, there was only three members because uh, they didn't have a drummer, they only had a singer and a guitarist and a bass player. Mm. <clears throat> so um, it was one of them things where. Um, you know, they can't come and ask you, would you be interested in joining the band? And I hadn't heard one song from Iron Maiden. They were like this heavy metal band from up part of East London and we were another band from East London. And It was like a lot of rivalry at the right. time. The punk scene had just come out and we were we were good friends with the Cockney Rejects because they were West Ham supporters. Oh, right. and so... It was a it was a lot of competition around in them days. We have a lot of pubs in East London that all had live music, um, so it was hard, it was hard for me listening to these Soundhouse tapes with just one guitar, uh, one vocal, and um, a band that sounded like uh, practicing in, in a, a rehearsal studio. <laughs> you know? And uh, that that's that was the, the the good. I suppose it was pretty good because you go into the band. Um, with a blank canvas, apart from mm. apart from the songs, some of the songs or most of the songs being written and recorded, but also with a opening to 
work on them songs to make them better, to make them bigger, uh, with a bigger production and more guitars and more vocals. So it was quite handy to go in at that time with just right. the three of them. And as and the story goes, as you, everyone knows, is that I was good friends with Clive Burr and uh, I bumped into him about two days after joining the band. And we were rehearsing at Hollywood Studios and he asked me what I was doing and I told him that I'd just left RDB and I was joining Iron Maiden. I said, but they've not got a drummer. So basically chatted to Clive, told Steve that Clive was not working at the time and uh, took him over there and they liked what he did. So right. uh, the band was then complete. Right, know? right, right. But um, yeah, it was all new to me. I, I, I listened to Prowler and I thought, it sounds punky. It sounds what is this? It was the the production, the the quality was so bad, you know. So you had to start from the beginning, you know, right? Which was quite nice. <laughs> you know. We'll take a listen to Prowler, and we'll come back right after that. Cool. Uh, I mean, going into the studio then and re recording this album, um, were all the songs there already? Or, well, if we go back before the album, because um, it was it was so so rushed. Um, basically, um, when EMI um, signed the band, when they asked me to join. They told me that they had a deal with EMI. So the first thing we did was to go into the studio because in 79, we were going on tour with Praying Mantis right. for the Metal for Mothers tour. So uh, what we had to do was go in to rehearse, not for the album, but for a live show. Mm. And the most frightening thing about that being I was the oldest in the band, but they were very young. But the, 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 the worst thing was we had to play for a, a, an hour and 20 minutes right. because we were headlining. Yeah. Well, we don't think we had enough songs. So what Steve did was he got all these old cassettes out and we sat there going through, you know, the songs that we were playing, already rehearsing mm. uh, for a live show, um, Phantom, um, Iron Maiden, Running Free, uh, Sanctuary. And then we started digging out things like Rothschild. Um, Killers wasn't even thought of then. Right. And we found things like, you know, uh, there's songs that I was trying to remember the other day. And I asked, Burning Ambition, that was it. And there were songs <laughs> coming out of the woodwork. And we said, right, well, how long have we got now? We've got an hour and 10 minutes. We've got an hour and 15 <laughs> Okay, well, if we lengthen this and do an extra couple of guitar solos, um, and we got by, the album wasn't even on our minds, and uh, we went out on the on the uh, Metal for Mothers tour, and uh, the next thing, this is where I I start to get things around the wrong way. I think it was halfway through the Metal for Mothers tour that we had to come away, and um do the album right then you've got another problem because then it's down 
Steve was the boss anyway. Um, what, how many songs going on the first album? Right. What we're going to put on the first album and what we're going to keep for the second album. Mm. So it was one of those things where I was, I was able to work on the live set with harmony guitars, harmony vocals, making the songs bigger, bigger production, fatter sound, bigger sound. And uh, not knowing what was going on the album, which in the end, you know, Steve, Steve and Rod chose the songs that were going on the album. And um, we could then start to relax because then uh, we went and had a look at a couple of studios. We went to look, spoke to a couple of producers because uh, Steve was interested in Andy Scott from Sweet because right. he, loved, he loved all the B-sides. Yeah, Sweet, yeah, yeah. In the UK them days, the B-sides were rocking. Right, Sweet, yeah. Not the poppy ones. And uh, that didn't work out with Steve and Andy. So, um, and then we've got Will Malone, which uh, I don't think he was that bad. When I look back now, he was quite lazy. <laughs> but um, in them days, what you have to remember is that um, when you're recording analog two-inch tape in them days when you got people playing together or the drummer and bass player playing together or the screens are all around the kit to stop the spill of the mics. It was hard, but also it was rushed because EMI wanted the album finished and out by a certain date. Right. They were already getting advanced orders for the album, so um, that made it even more impossible to get, you know, get concentrating. And... Slowly, I spent a lot more time in the studio than the rest of them because I wanted to do these harmony stuff. I wanted to make the songs bigger. And uh, basically, at the end of the day, we got it done. Um, and then I think it was just a whirlwind. We just left the studio. Um, we went back onto the Metal for Mothers tour and then straight out with Judas Priest. Right, right. So it wasn't until we were... It, or it might have been Judas Priest and then back to the end of the Metal for Mothers tour because it was such a whirlwind, I, couldn't rem I can't remember. All I remember was that we were, we were in a car driving to another show, don't know where it was, and we had a call from EMI that said um, uh, the album was coming out on a, this certain date, the right. next week. And adding up the, all the advanced orders that were already paid right already ordered they got a rough idea it was going to go top 10 right and then what they didn't bank on or they might have done but they didn't tell us was the fact that with the day it was released people go into the shop and actually buying it not advanced order they went and bought it over the counter it went number four right so it was just we just couldn't believe it and um we couldn't realize we couldn't believe our how quick we did the album um, and uh, if you think back now, you'd think, I'd never do that, you know. <laughs> and the funny thing is, it's, it's become one of the iconic albums yeah. because it sounds raw, yeah, and that wasn't purposely done, like right? That. Right, it was just the way it was, the way it was rushed, yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and the same thing with Top of the Pops when Running Free as a single went in the charts, they said, We're going to do Top of the Pops, and then and then Rod said, Well. You're only going to do Top of the Pops if you do it live. And the nightmare of that, because if you go to the BBC and if you cough, they tell you the shush. So the, the, if you imagine in a studio in live with Iron Maiden, um, we had to damp all Clive's 
drum kits down with toilet paper and kitchen roll. And <laughs> so it was like, boop, 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 boop. he could hardly hear it. And uh, Dave was fretting over um, the marshals. Right. And I said, no, look, I said, I've got this H&H amp. It's an old H&H amp. It's got a master volume and a gain. I said, so if you turn the gain full up, bring the master volume back and you play, it sounds like a transistor radio, but you still get that distorted sound like a little pig nose. Right, so yeah. go, Great. So we use them. And, uh, and the funniest story, which is true, was that a guy called Shaking Stevens Oh, who was doing? Oh, Julie. He was doing. <laughs> he was doing this old house. Right. Yeah. And he was on this podium, which was shiny plastic, shiny podium, with a monitor in front of him, and he was miming, and he's got this bit of music coming back to him through this monitor, and he's miming, but we're all standing in the studio, and he had these brand new pair of trainers on, and as he's dancing. All you could hear was the squeaking of the trainers. You couldn't hear the backing track. And because he's miming, he's like, right. <laughs> and it, it was complete silence in the studio. And all you could hear was wee, 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 all these squeaks of his trainers. And we were crying. And it was Peter Powell was the, was the DJ that night, the presenter. But then when we come to do ours, it, it got the guy was coming out with his headphones on. No, it's too loud. It's too. And in the end, we did it. Everything on that stage was like quieter than what we're talking now. Right, right. It was like like little transistor radio amps, you know. But yeah, and it, even that was that was in between. We we filmed we recorded that in between two gigs. Mm. So you're you're constantly you were constantly rushing from one show to the next. And right. You know, saying that, um, the lucky thing about that was that. By playing a headlining gig like we did on Metal for Mothers, right. when we went to Priest, we were able to cut down to 45 minutes, which meant we could play the cream of the songs that we'd worked on, and um, uh, it was more polished. Right, so right. Was, uh, same as the Kiss Tour. They yeah. gave us a, that was 45 minutes or an hour. So it, it, was, it, it put us in good stead for the second album because while we were travelling on the Kiss Tour, I was able to then work on Killers. Right. And um, then Steve said, okay, look, we've got these songs left over from the first album, mm. Rothschild, and I can't remember the other stuff. Was it? Uh, I can't remember now on, on Killers. But um, the reason why I, I probably didn't take much notice of Killers' album when it was released is because I never got to record it. Right. It right. was one of those things that I'd worked on for weeks and weeks, uh, especially the title track, Killers. And... Uh, and then when they did, when we got back from the Kiss tour and filmed the video for um, Women in Uniform, mm. which I thought was a big mistake because mm. I don't know what, why Zomba Publishing wanted us to cover that, but it's down to them. But um, you know, when we were due to go in to record the next album, I was raring to go with all the pre-production that right. we worked on for Killers, right? And but I never got to record it, so um, that's probably why I didn't pay a lot of attention to right, the album. Right, you know? right, right. But luckily, all the work, you know, uh, Adrian done a great job. Um, so all the work was there for him. A bit like me going in on the first album, working on the songs on demo form. Adrian was able to go in and find in the songs, basically finished. Mm. 
So he just had to put his parts to Right, it, right, know? right. So he had, a, he had a nice job, you know. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> Let's take a listen to Running Free and we'll come back right back. also thinking it sounds like i mean uh working under that kind of pressure uh do you feel that album the iron maiden album would have been different have you had the time to really spend time with the songs and work on them or no i think i think we had enough time working on the song mm. i think it was just the time scale for recording the album right that was rushed yeah um as you say, Steve. Steve don't like the production. I, I now I listen to it. I don't. But in them days, when it had to be done and finished, EMI were 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 banging the, the stick on the floor, so mm. you had to get going. But um, looking back, if you'd have took a couple of more weeks to record it, you could have had a bit more finesse, a bit more. But then that would have maybe took the edge off of that rawness, that right. funky raw. Um, feel that it had yeah. so I don't know it might be a blessing in disguise that that's how it went because everyone loves it right absolutely it's absolutely. not a lot of it's not a lot of effects on them guitars or, or them uh, um, the vocals it was just done there it was in your face you know? right so. right but this guy Will Malone I mean do you know what he'd done before he did the no. Maiden album no no I think Steve checked him out with Rod um uh, no idea, but also what you got to remember in them days is that uh, with 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 producers, um, Martin Birch was a completely different guy. Right. But, but Will Malone was one of these old producers, like a bit like um, uh, Tangerine. Is, is that uh, they'd have a great engineer in the studio, who you'd have a tape up. Uh, the engineer would record all the stuff, so you had the engineer sitting at the desk. 16 hours a day and a lot of these producers like Jonathan King in the early days or you know like Will Malone they would sit there with their feet up on the desk <laughs> not really getting hands on right but listening out for certain things oh okay so it's an old fashioned way a lot of producers a lot of producers and engineers they do, they do it themselves now yeah so you engineer and produce it yourself like right Steve right Steve Mann from Lionheart will will engineer and produce mm. and master it. Um, in the old days, the old-fashioned producers used to sort of sit there. Um, we I remember uh, we were working with um, Steve Lipton and um, uh, the guys just got out of my head. He, they produced and uh, worked with Jerry Rafferty. Oh, right. And uh, they had a studio in Buckinghamshire and we stayed there for a little while. And they were similar. Um, the guy worked on the desk and... and Steve Lipton would sit there and looking up at the ceiling and he'd come out with this crazy idea that we'd try and it seemed right. to work. Right. Whether or not Will Malone came up with any great ideas, I don't <laughs> think so. But he was one of them old producers that, that sat there, um, feet up on the desk. Right. He would listen and then every now and again make a comment. Right. But it was mostly he trusted the engineer to do most of the work. Right. And, and I remember sitting with the engineer most of the time in the control room with the guitar because it was a one-on-one -on -one rather yeah. than being in the studio with yeah. the last petition, you know, you'd be next to him. So it was quite nice to have that intimate relationship while you're putting guitar stuff down. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
But uh, no, Will Malone was that sort of old-fashioned. We didn't really see him much because, as I say, we, we got a lot of the recording done as quickly as possible with um, the engineer. And then we were out and, yeah. then, and then left him to it. You know, I don't think Steve ever and went back for the final mix. Oh. I think we were like so busy and out, okay. out on the road again. So, All right. Yeah. It kind of sounds like um, uh, the producer Rick Rubin. Because uh, he, the feeling you get of Rick Rubin is who's, you know, he he's produced ACDC and, and, and Slayer and whatnot and, and Metallica and so on. That he kind of leaves the band in the studio then he goes away then he comes back like a week later just to check okay so so what you got right and then he goes well that's good that's bad that's good work on that and then right. it go away again gotcha well that that's basically um for that sort of thing in my opinion <laughs> is that's um help him help him write the song mm. um with, with uh will malone the songs were already written he right couldn't, he couldn't pick certain bits well, Steve wouldn't have let him anyway, but <laughs> he, he couldn't pick certain bits. Um, I can imagine someone going into the studio and saying, right, what you got? Yeah. And they've got 16 songs and they want to put 12 on the album. So they root, they run through the 16 songs yeah. and him picking out right, the yeah, four weak yeah, ones. Yeah. That makes sense. But I know what you're saying. It's like it's like uh, Mutt Lang with, with, with uh, Def Leppard and right, things yeah. like that. Uh, he wants to write this, put his bit in there, play this bit. Yeah. You know, whether or not it's part to get the bit of publishing for help writing the song, <laughs> I don't know. I imagine it is. But uh, it's not for me to say. But uh, as I say, it's it, with him, he was very laid back, very quiet, never got flustered, very rarely suggested anything while we were there. Okay. Whatever the relationship we had with the engineer, we didn't really see that much. Right. As I say, we were always in and out. Gone. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, yeah. But but also, I mean, working on the album in the studio, did you guys, I mean, did you have a sense of that you were kind of onto something, that, you know, these are really good songs and we're, you know, we're getting a good vibe from the songs we we're actually I putting think, down here? I think two things there. I think the more, me personally, the more I worked on them, the more I was getting in, into them mm. because... I was getting more of my bits in mm. to, to, to sort of make them bigger with the harmony guitars. Yeah. Um, uh, at first, when they were sounding demo formed on a cassette, I didn't like them because it was very punky and very noisy. Right. But once you got the songs uh, starting to pan out and you could separate them and break the songs down, I think then you can spend you get more interested in them because you're starting to see the development of the the work that we've put in as a whole band rather than just Steve writing the song and Dave and Steve putting it down as a demo yeah um with a drummer mate of theirs whoever but um yeah you 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 tend to get more into it and learn more about the song as you're recording it, because you're close up to it all the time. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And it also that also helps you live. But as I say, when when we had to go back from a 45 minute slot to an hour and a half, hour and twenty, you start looking at other songs to put in, and then you got to cut the set back, which was lucky because the same thing with Kiss, we yeah. were able to cut the set shorter. Yeah. So it was quite good. I mean, of the songs. On that album, which one would you say is your personal favourite? 
I always is it Phantom? Loved, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the funny thing was with that is because because I love harmony guitar, yeah, and harmony vocals. There's an old story that um, it got a bit a little bit blown out of proportion with Chinese whispers or or whatever. But because I spent so much time in the studio with the engineer, um, doing the harmony guitars and harmony vocals. You get bored, yeah, and you you, you, you think oh, you know we'll do something different, you know. Uh, there was a couple of times where we'd we'd record something on a loop tape, um, and just let it play, and then leave the studio and go to the pub, and leave it, and and on that loop it'll be it'll be hit the engineer asking a question, and the band will turn up and they go, where is he? Does he, <laughs> he keep asking the same question for? Right, you know, and. Uh, but we were in there working on Phantom, and uh, I just had this sudden urge to put more guitars on, mm. and um, especially the vocals, more more like Queen, and the uh, whole me guitar me, and uh, I put these different harmony vocals on, and um, we were listening back to it, and it sounded massive. Yeah. There's no way in this world that we're going to keep it because <laughs> Steve would kill me. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we, me and the engineer were, were laughing because a Rod Smallwood walked in. We didn't know he was there. Right. And he was listening to it. And he, his face just turned to thunder. <laughs> and uh, where are you, Rod? You know, what are you doing? And he said, you can get rid of them effing guitars and them vocals because it sounds like effing Queen. <laughs> Oh, no, it wasn't a bad job then. I mean, so next minute uh, they all come off, you know. Yeah. But it was just for fun. We just <coughs> we just wanted to see what it would sound like. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people. I did an interview in Amer in America uh, over the phone a few weeks ago, and many times people say to me, uh, "Have you ever thought of recording it the way you heard it?" You right. Know, yes. A big, a big epic. A yeah. Big, and um, funny thing is, as you get older, what we've Listening to, you know, within Temptation and and uh, other um, orchestral sort of like symphonic, yeah. But it makes me want to do it even more, right? But um, when I spoke to Steve Mann from Lionheart about it, and I said, look, if I speak to Steve Harris because I see Steve all the time, we talk to him one another on the phone, you know, once twice a week, and mostly about West Ham and about football and about, right, you know, this and that, moaning about something we are. Um, I said, I've always wanted to record Phantom of the Opera, like a big epic, you know, like with, and uh, he said, well, why don't we do it? So it's one of them things that's sitting there and um, knowing Steve, once he gets into the studio, because he's got so many different plug-in effects in the studio right. with cellos and things like that, it would, it would be great, even if it didn't get on an album. Right. Just to keep for yourself to... To have that big production building up through the song, right? Uh, and it's got the opportunities with you know, uh, you damage my mind and my soul. It just comes to the. It's definitely like a, a Queen Bohemian yeah. Rhapsody yeah. touch, isn't it? Yeah. And um, it's one of them things that's very tempting to do. And in the middle parts, you know, boom, 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 getting cellos involved or or um, you know, low double basses and things like that. And it's all part of this thing, little worm in my head that's yeah. turning around and getting all these big vocal sounds, you know. But we have been asked many a time, would you do it? And it's always been there. So I don't know. I can't say definitely 
I've spoke to Steve and Rocky about it. I've got to speak to Steve Harris about it. I know he'll be fine, but yeah, whether or not it will be on a new Lala album, I don't know. But um, I definitely would like to record it if we had the time while we were in the studio for a few days just to whack it together. Absolutely. And see what it would sound like, you know. That would be really nice. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Cool. Let's take a look. Uh, listen to uh, Phantom of the Opera then. Well, that song as well is, for me, um, that song is, uh, it kind of gives you um, a hint of what Iron Maiden would later turn turn into. I mean, that is like proper Maiden for me with the guitars and all that. Um, And it is a great, great song. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I think Steve Steve loved... um, when I first met him, he loved the time changes of certain songs. Yeah. You know, different speeds, different tempo. Yeah. Um, I think because he was a lover of Jeff Tull and uh, um, bands from the prog rock days, a lot of them changed times and things like that. So I know he's, he, he loves all that and it still goes on now. You know, right. The British yeah. Lion, he's, he's doing it on his new single. Exactly. And, um, but yeah, it's, it's been, although funny you should say that, it, it was weird that, um, when Bruce joined, and um, then they had the three guitarists with Yannick and uh, uh, Adrian and Dave. Um, some of my favourite songs that I find um, they went very commercial at one time with, like "Run to the Hills." Yep. And um, and when when some of my favourite songs are um, Two Minutes to Midnight" or um, uh, "Wasted Years," yes. They don't sound a, a typical Maiden riffy right, Phantom right, of the Opera right, track. Right. So when you say you, you saw that as the way yeah. Maiden was the direction they was going, I thought exactly the same. Right. And then when I think the most commercial time was when they did, you know, um, Afraid of the Dark, and, and they're the catchy ones. Yep. You oh, know, yeah. And uh, they're, they're, not, they're not too heavy. No. You know, like... No. Um, uh, the, the evil that men do, them sort of all through them ones I've just mentioned. Um, when I when I when I went to Italy for the first time, playing the Maiden show in in two thousand and four with the Clairvoyance, and they used to do an hour set before I went on. Yeah, but they would do all my favorite, all, uh, nothing from the first two albums, um, because that was what, when I'd go on stage. Right. But when I heard them do things like Two Minutes to Midnight and Wasted Years and that, it was phenomenal. You know, it sounded just like the band. Yeah. And and it wasn't, to me, a typical Iron Maiden um, song. True. Uh, heavy metal. True. You know, and then you, then they changed to other stuff. Yeah. Know? So, uh, yeah, it's, it's weird in a way, but, you know, you can't knock it. The, the For me, The Book of Souls, I thought, was the weakest right, album right, that right. they've had for a long time. right. But, you know they come back with a great album, and uh, and now Bruce and Adrian are writing a bit more, mm. uh, whereas Steve used to do all the stuff. Yeah, um, it, it's a good combination, and uh, 
even now, I tell you now, we go to the O2 in London and I meet up with Steve, as I say, quite a lot. But when we go to the O2, me and Selwyn Julia, and we, we stay with, we stand with all Steve's family uh, for the hospitality, like a, a burger or a, a beer or something like that before the show. And um, even his family, like his brother-in-law or his cousin, will come over and say, yeah, uh, you know, isn't it amazing? They just they just roll on, yeah, and on like yeah. a huge machine, yeah. And uh, and they they've even said to me, "What do you think the secret is?" And I went, "I don't know." No, because even little babies are wearing Iron Maiden t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They've never even heard the band. <laughs> no, true. And uh, it, it's no matter even if they do a bad album, them fans are totally committed. You yeah, know? yeah, so yeah. They'll still rock on for a long while. I hope right. They but also that first album, as as you mentioned before, the like you listened to the demos and they had more of a punky yeah. feel to it. And that was when the punk scene was coming out. Exactly. 78, 79. Yeah. But you were then more of a Queen guy or, or that kind of music. I was or... more a Wishbone Ash guy um, because of the harmony guitars. Mm. You know, I used to, in the, in the 60s, um, I learned on a little guitar listening to the Beatles and the Stones, but... The first band, heavy metal band I listened to was Led Zeppelin uh, on the old record player, you know. Yeah. And uh, you start picking up things like Deep Purple, Your Eye Heap, and um, you get into that sort of like swing of that genre of music that that, that way. So it wasn't so much Queen. Um, I wasn't a lover of Freddie Mercury's voice. Oh. I loved Queen with Paul Rogers when Ooh, he sang with him. Okay. But I wasn't a lover of Freddie Mercury's voice. I found it a bit thin. Right. But. Um, the, the actual writing and, and Brian May's guitar stuff and the way the band put stuff together was okay. brilliant. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, my my main bands that I used to listen to, White Snake and UFO in the, in the 70s, yeah. was, um, see, UFO, not really a heavy metal band. No. And when you listen to their songs, Lights Out and things like that, um, in the 70s, um they're not heavy metal songs. No. They're just like I agree, like rock songs, yeah. and they're pretty simple. Yeah, and um, so I was more brought up with the Wishbone Ash feel, with the not so heavy, but also very influenced by uh, American bands, right? Which is I've always been Journey, oh, phenomenal. Okay. Uh, my favorite bands: Toto, Journey, Foreigner, okay, um, them sort of bands, okay. And then in the eighties, I got to see so many when we was recording. The Lionheart album in Los Angeles in '84. You got to remember in the '70s and the '80s in, in the UK, especially in London, you had probably one radio station, which was Radio One, yeah, or the Light Service or Medium Wave or whatever. You never had Planet Rock. You never had jazz stations, uh, reggae stations, soul stations. In America, you have stations for everything. Yeah, and uh, it wasn't until we went over in '84. We got into we got into um, Journey uh, in the end of the seventies, and uh, especially Toto and uh, uh, when their song came out, Hold the Line. Right. That was for me. Steve Lukather was my influence all my life. Okay. You know, uh, um, he, I've just read his book, the, the Gospel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Calling the Luke, and he's been my influence uh, all through my life with the stuff he's worked on because I followed him through Quincy Jones. Uh, Michael Jackson, The Tubes, Chicago, every band he's worked with, Steely Dan, every band he's worked with, I've followed him. Right. Because I admire someone that has 
the ability and the talent to change the style of playing at the drop of a hat. You know, go in a studio and do a song with Boz Skaggs and then go and do Tubes and then mm. go and do Lionel Richie yep. or, or Michael Jackson. And you go, Jesus, he's no end to the talent, you know. So Journey, Foreigner, Toto uh, have gone be my biggest influences all my life. Oh, right. Oh, uh, yeah. David Coverdale and Paul Rogers for me, great voices, you know. Cool. And, uh, but as I say, I, guitar-wise, I, it was always Wishbone Ash because of the harmonies. Right, right, right. And um, then the harmonies got more technical the, far, the older you get and the yeah. faster you get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when you start pushing it up to the limit, right. you know. Cool. So, yeah. Interesting. Uh, the thing I thought of was also that for the first Maiden album, you did what I believe was your first photo shoot you did with Ross Halfin, uh, I think. Ooh, maybe, I can't I think that I think there's photos in the uh, the reissue of the album. Right. Do you have any memory of that? No. No. <laughs> no Ro and Ross Halfin is known as being a pretty grumpy guy. <laughs> well, the funny thing was, when, when we met Ross, he was working for Sounds. Yes, he, uh, exactly. Jeff Barton was the <clears throat> Yes, I mean, yes. I was good friends with Jeff Barton. He, right. He, 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 when, when, when we parted company with the band, he was so sad because uh, he used to put songs in his playlist right. dedicated to me because oh, he right. thought, basically, I got a raw deal. Yeah. You know, and I didn't get enough time to right. think. But it was the way the band was moving. The reason why I, I, I'll tell you the truth, and it's nothing, uh, people know this anyway. The fact is, what happened between me and Rod, if you don't mind me saying sure. this, um, is that Rod was young. He was a, a never managed a band before. He was naive and he had this huge deal with EMI. Yeah. He was frightened about the band. He, he wanted to wrap the band in cotton wool. Yeah. He wanted to keep the band together. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Now, previous to joining Iron Maiden, as I've just said, I've been on tour with Status Quo all over the world, all right. over Scandinavia, yep. Europe. I know what it's like sitting in a tour bus <laughs> with the same five guys every yeah. day. And these guys in RDB, I grew up with from school. Right. And we're like brothers. Yeah. You still, you still piss me off. Yeah. Because I'm tired. <laughs> yeah. You're getting on my nerves. Yeah. It's going to creep in. Yeah. It creeps in with everyone. And, um, during the Kiss, uh, during the Judas Priest tour, um, I used to room with Dave Lights. Oh, so Dave Light always roomed with Dave Lights everywhere we went from the, from the minute I I joined the band, and Rod took that as so you don't want to room with one of the band. It's nothing to do with that. Dave Lights <laughs> is mad. I'm mad. Yeah. I like a laugh. <laughs> yeah. Steve is a very serious person. Right. If I do what I'm doing with Dave, Steve will kill me. Yeah. So don't. It's a bad chemistry. And I try to explain this to Rod Sight time and time again. And um, on the Judas, Judas Priest tour, I got really good friends with uh, Glenn Tipton. Mm. And then slowly I'd go, oh, I'll tell you what I'm going to do today. Can I come and travel in the truck? with Dave, Steve, my guitar tech, and Loopy, the drum roadie. Mm. Yeah, come and join. So next minute, we get to the gig. I'd get a bollock in from Rod. Where you been? Well, I'd come with the crew <laughs> for a laugh. Why? You don't you want to travel with the band? Oh, don't go there. And, it, and that, he was paranoid. Yeah. And then it, and it got to a point, a breaking point, um, on the Kiss tour, 
because he said, I don't want anyone mixing <clears throat> with Kiss mm. because, they, you know, they're private people. Mm. Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley took me out for my birthday in Stockholm. Right, yeah. And I got on them like house on fire. Photographs done with them. Rod, don't like it. And I said, Rod, I can't help being friendly <laughs> no, with people. Exactly. That's the way I <laughs> yeah, am. Yeah. Don't shut me away. The music you listen to. Okay, I listen to the Eagles. Don't if anyone finds out you listen to the Eagles, they'll kill us. Oh, I also listen to Little River Band, George Benson. And he went berserk. Right. So it got to a point where on the Kiss Tour, I travelled uh, with a couple of people from EMI right. in their car. Right. Because I just fancied a change of scenery. That was wrong. Uh, I travelled with a crew. That was wrong. And in the end, it got to the end of the Kiss Tour where he's... He's in, he's in my room and he's going absolutely potty. He's saying, you're just not into the band. You're just going out your way to not mix with the band. You're you're not. And I went, if you're so wrong. Right. I said, if I listen to Motorhead 100, uh, 100 times a day, what would my ears be like? Yeah. And, I, and we had a sit down and I said, you're not happy with my job, my work. He went, no, the, what you do is beyond what we ever expected. All right. And I said, so it's not me playing then. It's not me singing, no. It's just you. You're just not into Iron Maiden. And no matter what I said, wasn't going to change it. Right. And uh, and it wasn't until um, 1984, me was in the Rainbow Grill um, in Los Angeles, me, Rocky and Steve from Lionheart, recording the first Lionheart album with CBS. And Rod Smallwood was in there. And he... He called the waitress come over and said, uh, the guy over there wants you to sit sit down, but he wants to buy you a beer. And I went and sat at his table. We shook hands. And he said, I owe you an apology. Oh. And I said, why? He said, because everything you said, trying to keep the band together, uh, it backfired. All right. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. They were fighting. Yeah. <laughs> Steve wasn't talking to Bruce. Right. That was a bit... He wasn't talking to him. And... He travels in a separate lift to him. Right. He won't come down the stairs with him. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, that's no help to me now, is no. it? No. <laughs> you wouldn't believe me four years ago. Um, so basically that's what happened. Right. And uh, it was, we shook hands. No one got angry. I, I, I departed. And uh, that's how I come get, get Lionheart together. But, you know, that story's gone along for 30, 40 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, So um, it's just... You know, it's a shame because it, I was saying earlier to a few people, it's funny now that because um, Maiden are so big, uh, it's only 30 to 40 years later. Well, let's say over the last nearly 20 years, um, I've been getting the recognition for the first two albums. Right, yeah. So basically it took 20 years <laughs> from 1980 to 2000, yeah. <laughs> even by even being in America a few exactly, times yeah. and no one knowing who I am, yeah. it's taken 20 years for someone to come and say, hey, <laughs> I really like what you did on that first album. <laughs> Thank you. So it ain't too long to wait, no. 20 years. You know. uh, we're going to end things here with the, uh, with the last track of the album, which is Iron Maiden. Uh, do you have any particular memories of putting that song together in the studio? Uh, no. <clears throat> a uh, great well, track. Another yeah. great track. 
All I remember about it was I thought always thought it was too fast, but oh. it, was, it was like it was it was manic. Uh, right, live, right. You got to remember, live the songs were a lot faster, right, than they are on the album. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was just manic to doing it. It was just crazy. Um, but it was one thing I do remember very clearly was that when Dave first gave me the the cassette mm. for um uh for the riff at the beginning. Yeah. And when he played, normally I would try and find a harmony to that. You know, just a, 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 a fifth or um, a, a note, the next harmony note to start. Right. A little bit higher. Yeah. But just by accident, by somewhere, I just felt... Right. So I I played that, and he went, "That sounds great." Yeah. And I said, "But it's not right. It, it's it's not the harmony." Yeah. <laughs> it's not right. It's, it's the, the, the the notes are wrong. But what we loved about it was when Dave went, he went up. And yeah. Right. Right. So he went down. Yeah. And he went up, and it seemed to work. But that was pure chance. Oh. So um, that's the only thing I remember about recording that song, <laughs> and uh, me trying to join in with the the, the, the um, backing vocals on the right, voice, you know, right. wherever wherever you are, and uh, but yeah, I, I love playing it live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. really good. Uh, but it's just and funny enough, no guitar solo in it. Right, just that. Um, right, uh, yeah, that yeah, slow yeah. Bit yeah, falls down. Yeah. yeah, but it works. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Although on on the record, I think when I do that. I think I did that in harmony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I vaguely remember doing it in right. harmony. Um, but apart from that, no solo. So right. it made yeah. a change for an Iron Maiden song. Absolutely. Not to have a guitar song. Absolutely. And the funny thing is, uh, it wasn't until Steve started to form, uh, re reform British Lion about five, six years ago, because uh, I didn't realise in the early days, in the early mid-70s, that he used to manage them. Mm. And they, they're friends of mine, like Graham Leslie, all come from down at Essex Way. Yeah. And uh, East Essex. And um, I, he, I didn't realise he managed them. And then when he when he joined them, uh, you know, and decided to reform the band and do have another go, um, he did an interview and he was telling me, he said, um, he's always hated long guitar solos in songs. <laughs> and I, I said to him, how many albums you done with Maiden? <laughs> yeah. You've done twenty odd album, wearing over albums. They've all got long solos in. He said, yeah, I don't like them. I oh, harmony guitars. I went, but this Maiden's known for harmony guitars because yeah. that's what I started. And, yeah. it, and he's like, no, I've never liked. It. So when you listen to British Lion, there's hardly any guitar yeah. solos in the <laughs> Graham's not got a lot to do, really. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. That's a good one. Jesus. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Dennis. And oh, an utter pleasure talking to you. Oh, fantastic. Thank and, you. And uh, we're going to leave things here with uh, Iron Maiden taking from the album Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden.